Well, we're coming towards the end of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, so if you can get your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 15, we'll be reading down to verse 23, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. If you're using the church Bible, that's page 972, uh, but uh, if you're in your own one, Matthew 7, verses uh, 15 to 23. And we're coming to the conclusion um, of Jesus' teaching. Um, he's going to sum it up uh, next week, uh, saying he's going to put these words of mine into practice. And we've heard lots of teaching, lots of good things, lots of challenging things. Uh, but a context he was in, he found himself in, um, is one where there was a lot of teaching that pointed away from him. In fact, it was the religious leaders that were trying to uh, uh, point people away from him. And so we might find it uh, difficult this morning to say, well, are there false teachers within a church? And this is how we're going to look at this. The title of it is Jesus and the Truth Against Deceit. If I was rewriting the title, I would say Against Deceit in the Church. We know there is deceit in the world, but is there deceit in the, in the church? He's talking about false prophets. So we're going to look at that uh, this morning. But let's not kid ourselves that that can't happen, because it can. And there's lots of evidence in church history where that's happened. And it's uh, the authority of God, the Bible, the word of God that has to come first before any preacher, prophet, evangelist, teacher, or whatever it is uh, we want to call them. So let me, uh, let me read the passage, if you're there. Uh, so in Matthew 7, and verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but in, inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognise them. The people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And these are challenging uh, words, aren't they? Um, I think uh, it's why it's important. Uh, We have denominations, don't we? And not everyone likes denominations. Um, I think the Baptist one is a good one. I'm a Baptist minister. But I think it's important to be connected. And I think it's important not to be isolated. And, and you find that people, when they get disillusioned with a denomination, they go off and set their own, and they don't want to be accountable to anybody. And there's danger in that, and not being accountable. Isn't that what we believe as Baptists, the church meeting? One person doesn't have the final say, unless his name is Jesus Christ. There's no one person in the church. It comes from the church meeting, the Holy Spirit among his people, discerning. Um, so we shouldn't be in isolation, which is why we're, we're, we've got a positive um, attitude towards the Baptist Union and locally the Eastern Baptist Association. But if we think that any church is not susceptible to this, uh, history tells us otherwise. I've got a few illustrations. There was an article in the Sunday Time magazine uh, a while ago. It was called The Cult of Indecency. The Cult of Indecency. And it told the story of Wayne Bent. Bent was a pastor of a church before leaving to set up his own denomination. You see, he didn't want the accountability. This was in 1918. He called it He called it, because he's quite a humble man, the Lord of our righteousness, or L-O-R. 
In December 2008, he was sentenced to 18 years in prison. The 68-year-old leader of the LOR cult claimed to be the Messiah. There are accusations of brainwashing, planned mass suicide, and most recently, child molestation. And it's those kind of news reports that we think, well, that can't happen. How can that happen out of a church context? In November 1978, 913 people died in a mass suicide in Jonestown. Of these, 200 were children, another 200 were over the age of 65. Babies had cyanide squirted into their mouths while adults queued up to drink theirs. All out of a, a, a Christian setting and someone who became above his station and pointed away from himself. And in some of us will remember Waco in Texas, 87 deaths followed uh, an assault by the FBI on the branch uh, Davidian sect led by David Koresh. In 1982, we haven't got more recent figures, I don't think, the FBI estimated there were over 3,000 cults in America. Before her death in 2003, Dr. Margaret Singer, an expert in sects, reckoned the number had risen to about 5,000. She said there are loads all over the world. A lot of people that draw others in isolation. Most of them, you know the singular most common thing in all of them? They're all led by a charismatic leader. We say, how could Hitler have done what he did? How could he convince so many people? He was a very charismatic person and he was a deceiver. So we need to be careful of who we are as a church and test things against the word of God. Jesus is the only one who can point to himself when he says, I am the way, the truth, and life. Ian Smith can't say, well, I'm the way and the truth and life. Follow me is to follow God, or I am the bread of life, or I will judge the world, or I am the resurrection life. I could say it, and if I do, you kick me out of the church. But only Jesus can point to himself. Everybody else must point away from themselves. The moment we start pointing to ourselves, we're in dangerous territory. And earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had warned of attacks from outside the church in the way of persecution. So we shouldn't be surprised about that. And we may say we see it more and more in this country. It's not real persecution, but we do get some. And we should expect it right at the beginning of the sermon. He said, blessed are you when you're insulted or persecuted or lied about. And the thing is, the issue is, if we expect it, then we can't be too frustrated with it. Um, if he points to himself and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, but the world doesn't know him, well, why are they going to believe what we believe? You see, so they're going to persecute a little bit or call us silly names or what's the worst that really happens? You know, you sandal-wearing do-gooder or something like that thrown at you. It's, not, it's hardly that much bad news. Other countries, they're being killed. So we do get a bit, and it's coming through the media and the portrayal of uh, ministers on TV, uh, always seem to fit a certain mould. I haven't got goofy teeth, so I would never uh, get an acting job as a vicar on TV. But the fact is, outside, they don't know God. And that's why we need conversions of the heart and draw them to God. And it was the religious leaders at that time that were pulling people, pushing people away from God. So he's got this teaching. He said, expect it from outside the church. But now he's adding a warning about attacks from inside the church. You ever, when you hear about these stories of wars, and we've heard prayer about that this morning, um, uh, they say friendly fire. Ever heard of friendly fire? You heard of friendly fire? You know what that is? Yeah. And it's a bullet in the back, isn't it? Do you think that doesn't hurt? How friendly is it? Any bullet in the back hurts. Any attack on the church hurts. 
It's not friendly fire when it comes from within the church, just as much as it's not outside of the church. And here, Jesus is warning about attacks from inside, particularly false prophets. He tells us to watch out, verse 15. Watch out. He's not saying that you might have some. He's saying, watch out, they're around. He assumes they're there. And there's a need, isn't there, for the church as a whole, under God, to defend truth. And not to pay lip service to the Bible. To fit in more with culture and society. You know, we can't really preach this anymore. Because society says it's okay now. Well, when did I ever have to bow down to society? What about the verse, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind? And then you'll be able to test God's perfect and pleasing will. But if I listen too much to culture and say, right, okay, I now need to make the Bible fit with culture, then I'm being a false prophet and I'm not speaking out and it's against God's will. False prophets sit outside the relative orthodoxy of the church, but within the church, they can appear to say godly things that lead people away from the Bible. And that does happen in church. They can minimise the Bible, you know, pay lip service to it. Or they can use God's name to enhance their own opinions. It's very hard, isn't it, when someone says, well, you know, I'm doing this because God told me to do it. So how do you argue against that? It's not tested, it's not brought out into the wider congregation, you're not shared it with other people. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And don't dare stop me because God told me. Okay. That's dangerous territory. Or cheap grace. You know what cheap grace is? I'll do whatever I want. I'll do whatever I want and I'll do whatever suits me and I don't care if it hurts anyone else in the church or my family or society. It's about what I like. And the fact is, I can do everything I want because God will forgive me. Cheap grace. The word prophet that Jesus uses here means anybody who speaks in the name of the Lord. Prophetic ministry, of course. We don't want to rule that out. We want that. We want more of it. But it's also anybody who claims to speak from God. It could be pastors, vicars, whatever term you want to use, teachers, evangelists and preachers. And all these things, there is a need to distinguish between true and false, fact or fiction. Because with the world going the way it's going, we need honesty and integrity coming out of the church and the truth being preached. And it's not the case, the church is not glorified and God is not glorified when false teaching is going on just to fit in with society. We need truth. I mean, how's it worked out for us? If you really look at God's blessing or not, how's it working out for the church in the West where we're bending so much to fit society? And Jesus gives a serious warning about false prophets. He describes them as ferocious wolves. Ferocious. That's quite a... a, That's a key word, isn't it? Everyone, you look at the um, uh, nature programmes, you see those on TV, high definition, you get all the detail, all the goriness. You ever see that? Have you ever seen those images of an animal being ripped apart by another? Ferocious wolves, Jesus calls them. Who's he ripping apart? Who are the ferocious wolves ripping apart? Who do you think? The church. The wolf is the natural enemy of the sheep. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and we are the sheep of his pasture. The false prophets, the false teachers rip apart churches. And it's a serious thing to harm God's people and it seems Jesus treats it seriously. You can see how seriously in verse 23 when he says on that day of judgment he will tell them plainly I never knew you, get away from me you evildoers. You know as a minister I'd better not teach people falsehoods to make it fit with society more. 
because I, I'm on very dangerous territory. He has hard words to say. And so I take it seriously. Hebrews 13, 17, leaders will have to give an account for the way they've spoken and acted. I'd better be a teacher of truth. Whatever society says, we've got to be teachers of truth, doers of truth. So that sets the scene. How do we discern, discern sorry, uh, false prophets? I'm going to hit my little button here. Hopefully that comes up. Never does it first time. There it is. Okay. How do we look? We need, we need real discernment within churches. When anyone says, you know, this is of God, deliberately, or God has told me to tell you, there's nothing really wrong in that, but it needs to be tested. It needs to be weighed up. Uh, maybe speak to other people. Discernment is needed. We don't only look on the outside. That's what society does. Appearances, or position even, or looks, or Bible knowledge. If we just look on the outside, that's not real evidence It's superficial. Verse 15, the ferocious wolves can appear in sheep's clothing. There might be an outward profession of faith. Verse 21, he says, but not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. They may know all the Christian words and all the jargon and all the creeds, but is it of God? It can involve supernatural activity. Verses 22 and 23. They may be prophesying, they may be driving out demons, they may perform miracles because they've invoked the name of Jesus and his name is above all names. Yet in that context, he says, I may say to them, I never knew you, get away from me, you evildoers. It's not condemning those activities in themselves, but it's saying it's not sufficient enough to weigh up a ministry. Just because that happens uh, doesn't mean uh, we've got a good teaching, we may have a false prophet. So that's what not to look at. We don't look at outside things. We know this, don't we? We know God looks at the heart. Uh, we want to look at how things pan out. We need things to be tested among people, in, not in isolation. You know, do as I say, why? Just because I've said it. Isn't that what every child hates for their parents? You know, why have I got to do that? Because I said so. It's not a real answer, really, is it? I always try to give my kids a reason, but uh, sometimes I had to make them up. I didn't really have one. It was literally because I said so, but there it is. Um, but we all want to know the reason, don't we? So things need to be tested. So if that's not how to look at, not looking at the outside, not looking at the, oh, he's a really, oh, he's a, he's a world-renowned minister or evangelist, you know, or he's got his own TV show or whatever it is. None of that is enough. It might point to a past ministry, and that's brilliant, but they can still come out with false teaching. You know, things need to be tested. So, what is the uh, way of testing? It's look on the inside. There's one test, and Jesus repeats it twice in this passage, 16 and 20, verses 16 and 20, and he says, by their fruit, you will recognise them. So if you look at the outworking of someone's ministry, or even a Christian, then it's the outworking of their fruit that you can recognise if God is behind it. Fruit on a tree is visible, isn't it? If you come into uh, someone's garden and you see apples on a tree, you don't need the gift of discernment to say, that is an apple tree. Now, if you went into someone's garden and saw apples and said, that is an orange tree, they'd say, well, you're being silly. And it's as simple as that. We need discernment. And so we need to look at the fruit of somebody's ministry. By their fruit, you will recognise them. The fruit on the tree is visible. We should see the fruit of someone's ministry. And the fruit on the tree is a telltale sign of hidden health, which is the roots are good as well. Because if there's fruit, it's living, which means the roots are good as well. 
And then he explains it more fully in verses 16 to 19 and goes on to talk about, you know, one can't bring up the other. It's either good fruit or not. John Stott says, noxious weeds like thorns and thistles cannot produce edible fruit like grapes and figs. So we're looking at the fruit. So good prophets and false teachers will reveal themselves by their fruit. I know that uh, Jonestown was wrong because it led to death and destruction and people killing their own children. It's a way out extreme. But if I'm in a church which seems to be against itself and angst and arguing and bitter infighting, I'm going to question the minister. You know, what is he teaching? Why has he not set an example? We don't want to go on a spiritual witch hunt because we're, we're not perfect people. So you're going to get some things uh, go on. But I'd always ask the question, are people generally being built up or are they being condemned? They come to church and get guilt-ridden rather than being set free to serve? Are people being saved? Is the church growing? Is there passion, not only with the minister, but with the people, or is there apathy? So we need to look at the fruit. And when we look at the fruit, I've picked out five things. Um, And we'll work through them. The first fruit, uh, the fruit of character. Who they are. It's easy to preach something. uh, or relatively easy. I put a lot of work into it. but, But... it's, it's, you've got to live that out. You've got to be able to live that out. You've got to have that, as what we were saying, all past year and into this year, character, the fruit of character. Galatians 5, 22 to 23, most of us know this, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Not that we're perfect in any of those areas, but we should be growing into them. We should be growing that way. And if you're under uh, consistent teaching, you should be growing that way as well, as long as you open up your lives to the personal work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself started the Sermon on the Mount, describing the Christian character in this way, Matthew 5, 1 to 16. Love, humility, a thirst for righteousness, merciful attitude, meekness, purity. So he's teaching this, and it was him. It doesn't mean any Christian leader or Christian is perfect, but you do want to see if there are fundamental flaws in their character. How are they growing? How's their teaching going? Are they teaching truth or they shy away from it? Cult leaders display enormous arrogance. They point to themselves and they're self-centred and they have a wonderful ability to manipulate the vulnerable and it leads to destruction. That's not the sort of minister you want. So that's the first thing. The fruit of the Spirit. Are they demonstrating? Secondly, the type of conduct. What do they do? Do you hear more, you know, this is what I want. I want this. This is what's got to happen. Or is it, I believe God is saying this for his church. I believe this is the way forward for his church. And even among ourselves as Christians, similar things. I'm not doing that way. I don't like it. So I think I'll just wander out. Okay, wander out then. Um, Is it what God wants? Is it what God wants? What do they do? They should be doing, verse 21, Jesus says, the will of the Father. What we believe determines how we live. If you like, the creed determines our conduct, if we truly believe it. Is a leader or any Christian living up, or trying to live up at least, to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, that righteous living, trying to do away with anger, striving to be better, trying to stand against lust, trying to encourage integrity, trying to say, love my enemies, even though it hurts, and maybe sometimes inwardly, I want to do other things to my enemies. Cults often 
a key, uh, key feature, but it tends to run through all of them, have sexual immorality. Jim Jones of Jonestown and David Koresh of Waco, they both chose sexual partners from their people. But the people have been so uh, manipulated and brainwashed, they just, he convinced them that it was normal. So we need to look at their conduct. They've got the fruit of character and the conduct of what they do. Uh, action is important. Thirdly, the content of their teaching. This is what they say. Are they generally speaking truth? Are they preaching the Bible? Or are they twisting it? Later on in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus draws it out. In Matthew 12, 33-37, again he says, you'll recognise a tree by its fruit. Look at the work. Look what's going on. Look at the teaching. Look at the lifestyle. Look at the example. We're told to test the prophet by their teaching. Bereans. This is not unscriptural. You know, I'm not saying, um, you know, in golf, you know I like golf. And there's a lot of rules in golf, so many, so many uh, that even the professionals call over a referee sometimes. And I think, well, I know that rule, uh, but is it two club lengths drop out of the hazard because it's a red hazard stake or a yellow hazard stake? It gets on your nerves, really. And so much so, they're going to try and simplify the rules um, uh, next week. But often, something will happen in a match and you're not sure of the rule. And um, so someone said, well, look, I'm going to play a provisional ball, but I'm going to play the existing one as well, because I'm not really sure. So he's now got to play, and he's got to work out. And then when he gets back in the clubhouse, they say, look, we didn't know what to do, whether I was going to have a free drop or not. And they have to test it. And they have to test it against the rules. There's nothing wrong with that. And the, the thing that's happened recently, because of this sloop, super slow-mo, you ever heard of that? Super slow-mo. Not just slow motion, super slow motion. And um, all the high definition. So now what happens... Uh, in golf, you do have referees, they call them over. There's not someone following and checking every little thing. The golfer calls the penalty on himself. It's supposed to be a game of honour. So if I happen to move the ball, but no one saw it, I'm supposed to call it on myself. And cool, so I always do. <laughs> it's not funny, I do. <laughs> but sometimes you wouldn't even be aware of it. So one of the rules they're going to change is if you address the putt but you don't touch the ball yourself and the wind moves the ball, there's a penalty. How unfair is that? That's one of the rules they're going to change. But that's, that's an unfair rule. But sometimes it's so imperceptible the player doesn't see it. But of course, all the viewers who had a camera zoomed in on the ball and it's in super high definition slow motion saw that it literally would move one dimple. So what happens then? Well... What happens then is no one's aware of it, no referee on the course, the players, the people he's playing with, no one's aware of it. But the people know. And someone rings in and says, guess what? He's all excited. Guess what? He said he just broke, didn't he just break the ball because the ball just moved. The naked eye couldn't see it, but had super slow-mo, high definition. And so what happens is the player goes in, he's not made aware of this, you see, because he's responsible for his own card. So he goes into to the hut, the scoring hut, and he signs the card. Now, in golf, if you sign the card and it's an incorrect score, you're disqualified. So what's happened is he should have had a penalty, but he didn't call a penalty himself because he didn't see it. Other people did, but he signed the wrong card. The rules have to be adhered to. He's disqualified. He's disqualified. What they did, they tested what happened or what he, the actions of him against what was in the rules. The Bereans in Acts 17.11 tested Paul. We wouldn't dare to suggest that we would test Paul, the apostle, the apostle Paul. But it says there, they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. 
So they weren't afraid, if you like, with the super slow-mo and the high definition. So it was good what he said. He preached well today. Let's go and check him out. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't want you to give me 25 emails in the morning uh, saying I've got a Greek spelling wrong for love or something like that. But it, you are right in saying you should test everything because people can get it wrong. Ministers can get it wrong. Sometimes deliberately. Uh, sometimes not. It's right to test the teaching. And you can do that in your DG groups. I always send the notes out. You can have a look. You can test the Bible references on the overhead. You know, if we're not preaching the Bible, we're in dangerous territory. So you test the prophet by their teaching. Uh, cults and sex, of, uh, sex um, often say the authority of the Bible is not enough. This is a clear defining thing. Uh, when the Bible's not enough, you know, I quite like it when a Jehovah's Witness passes me by in the street. I can keep them wrapped up for hours. Uh, often it's not that long. Uh, but Latter-day Saints... Uh, they've got the Bible, but they've got a Book of Mormon as well. They're adding. They've got some new rules. Or Christian scientists, they've got the Bible and Mary Baker Eddy, or the Jehovah's Witnesses, they've got their own version of the Bible. And, but they depart from some of the major doctrines. One of them is the Trinity. They don't believe in that. Or the divinity of Christ. He's a son of God. He's not the son of God. Even Christians, they can weaken the Bible and not live it out. Submitting to culture rather than submitting to God. Maybe there's an ignorance, but what about do not conform to the pattern of this world? And we need to stand. Any speaker, minister, prophet, Christian need to stand against cheap grace. Uh, Jude uh, 4. I say 4. There's no chapter in Jude. You know that? It's just verses. Uh, It does my head in. I always want to go Jude 1, verse 4, but it's not. It's just Jude 4, uh, found just before the book of Revelation. And talking about some who had slipped among them. They were among them. He said, they are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality. There's a theological word. I'm going to try and say it in my first attempt. It's called antinomianism. That's close enough. I'm not going to do it again. But it basically means I will do whatever I want because the Bible says God will forgive me. And that's cheap grace. Now, as offensive as that is, God's grace, I think, is bigger than we can probably imagine. But it's the wrong heart. And it's the wrong teaching to say, do whatever you want. We'll water this down because we need to fit in with society. That is false teaching. It goes on to say, and they deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. That's the more extreme. But the religious leaders of that time, who had Jesus in their presence... He'd stood with them, he debated with them, they denied who he was. The fourth thing is the result of their influence, the effect they have. So there should be an effect on the lives of the congregation. Are they a loving congregation? Are they generally joyful? I'm not saying it's got to be all the time, because things happen. Are they generally living at peace? At least are you preaching it? Are they generally a kind people? Are they generally doing good? Are they showing themselves to be faithful, gentle, self-controlled? Is the minister showing that as well? Are the lifestyles being produced that that Jesus commands? What is the effect of the preaching? Are people going away not changed? If they are, what's the point? You're learning a load of lessons, but as we said right at the beginning, it's great to be informed, we need to be transformed by the power and work of the Holy Spirit. So there needs to be effect. It's great to see change. I love it when I see people change. And I do see people change and I love it. I love it when they change for good. I love it when they make positive decisions for their lives, taking responsibility for their lives, acknowledging God. It's a great privilege. But I've got to tell you, sometimes I can come across people and I think the way they act or the things they said, it really affects me. And it affects me because I think, what have I been preaching? Is it not getting through? So we need to look at the result of the influence 
and then finally the depth of their relationship with Jesus. Who are they talking about more? They talk about Satan more. They talk about Jesus more. Who are they in private? John 15, we have the image of the vine. Jesus is the vine, which was the sign of Israel. We're the branches. We're grafted on. And he says if we stay close to him, then we're going to bear much fruit. And it's by their fruit you'll know them. You see how it all comes around. He says, John 15, 5, apart from me, you will do nothing. So I could preach my heart out, but apart from him, nothing will change. And so I have to say, well, then my allegiance can only be to one person. And that's to Christ. My allegiance is not to the world. And if I have to preach things that the world disagrees with, good. Because we're we're supposed to be countercultural. If it upsets some people in the world, because, you know, that's not the, the kind of all things go attitude, well then tough, because I have to have my allegiance to God. And it's getting worse and worse and harder and harder to do that. But it's important. Jeremiah in the Old Testament warned about false prophets in 23.18, but which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or hear his word? We can, I could come up here and give you loads of opinions and all my thoughts, but have I stood in prayer? Have I sought God? Am I trying to render his voice? That's all we're doing, not rendering our own. We're rendering the word of God for life change. A true prophet will know Jesus Christ. He'll listen to him, he'll proclaim his word, and lives, and sorry, and lives accordingly, and lives will be changed. Because God's word is powerful. If he's not preaching God's word, then he might get lucky. If he's preaching God's word, lives will be changed. Because the power of God in this book. And finally, as an encouragement, June 17, sorry, Jude 17 to 21. Again, no chapters, just the verses. Confuses me. A call to persevere. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. This is, well, it's all right. We've got a much more uh, inclusive society. We've got a much more uh, embracing society. It doesn't really matter. Isn't the Bible dated? We don't really need to preach that stuff anymore. They will follow the scoffers their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you. They're going to divide you because if you don't stay with the truth, then what is the truth? It goes on to say, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. Verse 20, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Verse 18, it's talking about self-importance, not much attention to the word. Let me do what I want to do. I'll just do it and I don't really care about anyone. I'll do what I want and I'll go in those, the seat of the, of the scoffers. And, or verse 19, they're going to divide because now there's no real truth. Well, you know, I know it says that, but you know, I went to a church and he kind of said, well, you know, that was for then and it's not for now, and we don't need to apply this anymore, and society tells us this, and the law's changed, so I've got to go with that. So there's no real truth anymore, because they're ignoring the one who says, I am the truth. But verses 20 and 21 give us the great hope where we get sent out in. Your allegiance is to God. He says, build yourselves up in faith. Have spirit-led prayer, and stay close to God. Isn't that what we want? The world needs churches and ministers and prophets 
who speak truth, who live truth, who are passionate about God, passionate about his word, passionate about his rule and reign. Because if if we get those people in our churches, then the people will change. Because God will honour the preaching of his word. Hearts will be on fire for God, full of the Holy Spirit, full of his power. And the world cannot fail to notice that. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, seek the kingdom first. Or the other translations, strive first for the kingdom. He's saying, I want to make my life count for the kingdom of God. I want to lay my life down. It's you laying your life down. Because he laid his life down for me. And the world at its worst needs the church at its best. And we are the church. You are the church. And we want revival in this land. As Norbert said earlier, everything we do has to start with prayer. No revival happened without prayer first. So let's commit to not looking at false teaching, not listening to the things that maybe the Bible says our engineers want to hear, but have the sound doctrine. Have the capacity and the integrity to preach the word, to live the word, to honour the word, to go out as ambassadors, as witnesses for Christ, the one who says, I am the truth. Let me pray for you. We thank you for your word, Lord, and we say it is the truth. And sometimes we read it and there are, we have to build theologies and there are uh, tensions that we find in texts. But we know there's a clear message that runs through all of the Old Testament and all of the New, and that's your great love for your world. That in the beginning it was perfect, in the end it will be perfect, but in the meantime we needed major surgery. And you provided Christ for us. Help us to follow him and his ways. Not to be led astray. Not to listen to words that say it doesn't really matter anymore. Or it's dated. But to be convicted of your word that's living and active. Sharper than a double-edged sword. And let it penetrate us deeply. So we can go out and change the world. For your glory, for your sake and in your name. Amen.